Hi, this is Dr. Richard Benton. And this is Father Mark Bulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider a small donation by pledging as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 a month. Your gift will help us improve production quality and will go a long way to contribute to the work of the Ephesus School. Please visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible to offer your support. Thank you. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Dr. Richard Benton. And this is Father Mark Bulos. In this today, our fourth episode, we're going to talk to Father Mark about the paper he gave at the Antiochian Biblical Institute. The title of his paper is Let the Bible Teach, Freeing Scripture from Human Agendas. First, we talk about biblical pedagogy, the way that the Bible teaches. Then, eventually, the conversation moves to the theme of consumer versus consumed, the one who oppresses versus the one who is oppressed. And we bring out some of the biblical and liturgical approaches and manifestations of this theme. So, Father Mark, when you gave your paper in Miami, can you just tell me what your paper was about? Well, it's actually an excerpt from a book that I'm working on, which focuses primarily on Galatians and how Paul, contrary to what's commonly said about the New Testament, Paul wasn't trying to say something new. He was trying to articulate something very old, the Mm -hmm. Torah, for the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. But taking a step back from that, I wanted to give a little perspective on biblical pedagogy, because I think understanding biblical pedagogy is really important in understanding why Paul didn't dismiss all these difficult texts. And not only did he not dismiss them, but they were actually the meat of what he was trying to share with the Gentile world. So, okay. Can I, can I just interrupt you for just one second? When you say biblical pedagogy, do you mean how the Bible is taught or how the Bible talks about teaching? I mean, more specifically, how the Bible itself teaches, because the basic premise of my paper is that when we try to impose a pedagogy, or when we try to get in between the text and the disciple, not only do we prevent the Bible from doing the work it was written to do on its own, but we actually manifest many of the characteristics that are that are condemned in Scripture, specifically in the paper, self-righteousness. Okay. Because when we, you know, when we're embarrassed of the content of Scripture or we feel we have to manage the content of Scripture, it's akin to uh, whitewashing in the prophets. You cover up things that are too difficult for you to hear or things that make you uncomfortable or things that you consider to be inappropriate. You cover those things up because psychologically they reveal something about you and they reveal something about your insecurities. Okay. You know, so the text is judging you. You whitewash it. You want to present something else that you can control and manage. And uh... So the Bible teaches. So that means the Bible is teacher. So what, if any, is the role of the human teacher? Like, does a Sunday school teacher have a role then? Or what is, what is that person supposed to be doing? Yeah, repeat the text. I mean, it's very to me, it's very simple, and people come up with all kinds of reasons to push back on this basic mm-hmm. point that the role of the teacher is simply to repeat the text. Uh-huh. Because people want to insert the church in between the Bible and the disciple. They want to insert themselves in between the Bible and the disciple. But the reality is, as we're commanded in Deuteronomy, if your disciple, if your son should ask you, what these sacred texts mean, your job is to recount the sacred texts. That's it. And I think people are threatened by this idea because you don't need a degree from seminary 
You just mm-hmm. need the ability to read in order to teach in this fashion. I think they're also threatened by it because if you allow the text to speak, the comfortable ideas, the comfortable dogma that you've encased yourself in as part right. of your own worldview is completely vulnerable. Right. Because when you can't control what the author of Scripture is saying mm-hmm. and you can't paint over it or put putty in, in between the cracks that offend you, right. th- it undermines you. And we know with Scripture, it always undermines its addressees. So I'm thinking, for example some practical cases. So we talk about the the text being difficult to digest. There's different reasons for it to be difficult. So for example, teaching, when we taught Micah to the little kids, or we taught Nam to the little kids, that produced some kinds of problems in digesting. But when we taught Nam to the adults, it produced problems. So with the kids, you know, they just are having a tough time following. They're just not tracking. The adults may be able to track a little bit better, although granted, they don't even, you know, even adults have a tough time tracking with some of the minor prophets. But then the violence becomes a problem. Interestingly, the seven-year-old boys have no problem with violence in the prophets, but the 50-year-old adults have a lot of problems with the violence. You should read what C.S. Lewis has to say about children's literature on that point. But just speaking to the adults and violence, the, the example that I always give, I mean, let's take Micah. In Micah, the leaders, the rulers of Israel, the rulers of Jerusalem, are ashamed of God's Torah. They're embarrassed by it. They don't teach it because it undermines their position in the community. Uh And the Lord's wrath against them for this behavior is manifest in his description of how their embarrassment and their reluctance with respect to the teaching afflicts their flock. And it talks about what we jokingly call people soup. Uh Uh, But it's not a joking matter. It's a very graphic, very uncomfortable metaphor in the story. But essentially... Micah is saying, look, because of the way you don't teach, you might as well just throw the people into a bowl of soup and consume them because what you're doing mm-hmm. is consuming them right. and being and selfishly using them. And that makes adults uncomfortable. And the example I give often about violence in Scripture goes as follows. So all of you are embarrassed or frustrated or indignant when you see genocide in Scripture. You have the same experience when you see any kind of abuse, when women are mistreated, when there's these graphic images and so forth. But how many of you are aware at this very moment of how many uh, genocides are taking place in the world today? Right. Why aren't you talking about that? Are you, all of you who are applauding yourselves because of all the supposed progress we've made in civil rights, Uh how many of you are aware of the the slave trade in the United States? Mm -hmm. Just in the United States alone. Right. How many of you know about the statistics about slavery in the modern world? Right. Have we progressed since the civil rights movement? I don't know. The data seems to suggest otherwise. In the Bible, in presenting this graphic, I want to say graphic account of how things actually work in human civilization Mm -hmm. as opposed to how we want them to work. Right. In presenting this graphic portrayal of humanity, It's constantly reintroducing this tension into our lives to force us to ask the question, are we behaving in such a way that we could be contributing to such violence? You know, it's interesting you say that because as you were talking, we keep, you know, you and I often talk about this image of people soup in Micah, but, you know, you have the consumer and you have the consumed. And then I realized how much is made of food in the Bible, all the way back to Adam. He was allowed to be a consumer, but with limits. And consumer, I'm not talking capitalism. I'm talking about actually eating. And and what the devil 
the snake said was, no, 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 you can eat whatever you want. And then we have all the crazy laws, as we would say in Leviticus and Exodus, about eating and how you have to put limits on what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat. And the idea that we're not allowed to eat whatever we want, that being an unfettered consumer in the literal sense, is a problem. And that this is what the role of the preacher is, is to preach against those who consume the others. I think you really hit on something important, and that was was so beautifully expressed in a sermon I heard when I was still at seminary. I was assigned to an Antiochian parish on Long Island. I was a student teacher at, at Father Paul Tarazi's parish, and uh-huh. I had been there for Pascha, Okay, and I heard one of the most important sermons of my life, really. He stood up to give a brief word on Holy Friday. It was the Paschal Sermon on Holy Friday evening, and he talked about the feast and how Christians gather to celebrate. But he gave them, it was a brief sermon, but he gave them a very stern warning. He said, but just please remember when you sit down to eat that for every one piece of bread or piece of lamb that you eat as a community, or, you know, more specifically, in order for you to eat one piece of bread, there are a thousand people that are going to bed hungry. So right. what are we consuming in the liturgy? And I, the reason it was so important for me is because the first time it struck me in the metaphor of the Eucharist in Scripture that where typically the gods of the ancient world would consume their own people in order for them to be to, to survive, whether mm-hmm. it was you know human sacrifice or oppressive taxation, the things that mm-hmm. religious institutions do with the government and so forth. There was a shift in the metaphor of the Eucharist in the death of Jesus because now the God or the Son of the God is saying don't consume each other. I'm certainly not going to consume you. For heaven's sake, if you need to consume someone, consume the deity. Right. And so that you can live in communion with one another. Right. It's a very powerful image. No, that's, that reminds me of something else, too, because in the ancient world, in Ugaritic stories, it talks explicitly about how when the community burns the sacrificial animal, right. they burn the fat or burn the meat, this is ceremonially offering food for the deity to, to consume. Correct. And that's exactly right. Rather than humans offering the creation so that the deity is fed, exactly what you say, the opposite happens, where God offers his own son so that human beings can eat. That is, I hadn't thought of that reversal, but you know, it's, it's fascinating how in the Bible everything turns on what is eaten and what is offered to eat. Sac- because sacrifice always refers to food also. I know in our kind of conception, you kill the animal. But in the ancient world, you eat the animal. If you want to hear one of the most delicious meals ever described, you should read the Iliad about the sacrifice that they perform before they go to war. And they talk about how they slice up each morsel of the ox and how how it smells when it's sure. when it's roasting over the... But this is eating and sacrifice always go together. They always have gone together. But who is the consumer and who is the consumed? It's very interesting how the Bible uses eating metaphors to talk about abuse. Well, right. And what's interesting is that in the paradigm of Galatians, which is the scriptural paradigm, in my view, he's just summarizing the the, the scriptural canon in a letter to the Gentile community. Right. The only bread that can actually sustain life, which is why, I mean, you mentioned that consumption and sacrifice are linked. It's because religious cultic traditions are all linked to the question of survival and life. It's just that in scripture, Paul is saying the only way that you can 
actually live is if what you're consuming, the bread that you're consuming, isn't made by human hands. You know, not from a human, it has to come from a progenitor who is not of the created realm. This is why gender is so important in scripture. It has nothing to do with male versus female. Uh It's because the metaphor of the progenitor coming from somewhere else and not being from our mother earth is extremely important in creating this division between what is made by human hands and what is eternal. But, you know, your point about this reversal, we were discussing this reversal of roles with the the consumption of Jesus in the Eucharistic metaphor. What's interesting is that the rulers in Micah stand in the place of the Son of God because they are functioning as interim or actually false messiahs by being kings in their own community. And so you have an anti-Eucharist in Micah, essentially. Because when you have a false king, he consumes you. When you have the true king, whose father is not one of us, he gives life. Right. Yeah, now that gives me more insight because the idea is the people offer food so that God can eat. But if the people offer food so that the priests can eat or the king can eat, functionally, the priests or the king take the place of God. Exactly. Now, with respect to how the Bible teaches, this becomes extremely important. Right. Because either you're letting the true Messiah speak to the community or because the word of the true Messiah makes you blush, you pick and choose what you want to say, and then, you know, you emphasize the liturgy, you emphasize their experience of in their lives. I mean, you just go off in another direction, but in doing so, you actually, you're hurting them. You're throwing them under the bus. Well, and I think, you know, when you talk about blushing, I think if you're blushing, you're not understanding the message because the Bible sets up the paradigm. You're either the consumer or the consumed. Right. Once you step out of the role of consumer, right. you're now prey. You're either you're either you're either looking for food or you are food. Like this is you know right. this is the savanna. And I'm just thinking, you know, if we have roving gangs in Russia who are mistreating, humiliating, and torturing gays and immigrants, if you're preaching against this, and we already know there are violent gangs out there, who are they going to come after next? Especially once your word gets out. Now, you have a choice. You can either be the consumer or the consumed. And if you're the consumer, then you are devouring those who are in need. If you are consumed, then those who are powerful are going to destroy you. So if you want to take the Bible message seriously... I think blushing is an understatement. I think you need to tremble because I think that now you have put yourself in the position of being prey, of being a consumable. And this plays out. It doesn't just play out in parish life or in a classroom setting or in your local relationships, so to speak. It plays out internationally because very often, just circling back to this question of genocide, and explaining why the Bible is so honest where we tend to lie to ourselves. One of the common responses I get when I make this point is that those people are way over there, Father Mark. Here in America, we all get along fine, never mind the school shootings. I mean, there's, we even are not honest with ourselves about this country. But right. let's pretend the lie is true, that everything's hunky-dory here. Right. You can't tell me that the violence in the Middle East has nothing to do with you. Right. You can't tell me, because in the same breath that you talk about how terrible they are over there and how there's nothing we can do, you complain about the price of gas 
You complain about the conveniences that you demand over here. Or you complain about how tenuous your own security is in the U.S. Right. When there are people who have experienced and seen things that only the Bible has the courage and the foresight to speak about plainly and openly. And, you know, when, whenever I have this conversation, I think of this beautiful girl, Rachel Corey, who is a girl from the U.S., a young woman, who went to the Holy Land to try to foster peace and fellowship and communication between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And she would stand in solidarity with anyone in need. And, uh, of course, it's a famous story. She was staying with the family of a doctor and his children, and their home was on a block that was scheduled to be destroyed by a bulldozer. This girl came from an affluent family, had all the advantage that all of us enjoyed. I taught at her university, so yeah. So you know how I'm... Yeah, and she went and stood in front of a bulldozer, and she lost her life. She made a choice. It doesn't matter if she's a Christian. It doesn't matter what she believes. From Uh the perspective of Torah, it matters how she acted. Right. And technically, she acted like the bride... Right. Of, of the Lord coming with the martyrs in Revelation because she stood with the weak and took no act of violence. She just stood with the weak and she gave her life trying to protect them. You know, and she's still trashed in mainstream media or, or scoffed at when they tried to dump. People will talk about how stupid she was for going. And so, uh-huh. But anyways, I think that that's the real deal. Right. And there are plenty of examples like that. I mean, where, where, where people make a choice to go stand with others. And it's not that... You know, whether or not it's realistic that you and I would go or that the folks in our local communities would go, that's not the real question. Mm-hmm. The question is, scripturally, right. what does the shame that we should feel for not going with Rachel to the Holy Land to stand up against the bulldozer, right. how does that shame prompt a change in behavior even in small ways in our life here in the United States. Right. And when, you know, getting back to our original point, if we let the Bible teach clearly and on its own, you know, we have the story of Rahab who put herself at risk because she was standing with the Lord's people, even at the risk of her own life and her family's life, and only had the testimony of what she heard had happened in Egypt as evidence of why she should help out. And these teachings are very powerful when they strike on their own, you know, without the filter of our own ways of teaching, our own agenda that we're trying to teach with. So I think that, you know, in the ideal situation, we're hearing those stories. Now, I understand that when you teach Rahab to small children, you're going to have to be discussing a a difficult topic of, you know, what is a prostitute? What were those men spending the night at a prostitute's house for? You know, there are those questions. But I think that as children grow older, they can learn those things, they can understand those things. But I think that when we hear the story of a woman who was at the bottom rung of her society, who stood with these other people on only faith that it would be okay for her or she would have to die trying. That's all she knew. And I'll say something, Richard, about reading it to small kids, because we were both living on the East Coast during 9-11. Right. I was in Manhattan. I saw with my own eyes you know, all the difficulties of that day. And the chief source of not just insight, but even personal stability, emotional stability for me during that, that whole experience was Isaiah. Because while everyone on Fox News was complaining about how great we are and how everyone's jealous of us, which is just, it's just, just a rotten thing to say because it just sows violence. 
All I could hear was Isaiah talking about the dead bodies that will be piled up one on top of another because we've turned away from the Torah. And it's not as though Isaiah is a fortune cookie that predicts the future, but Isaiah is a metaphor that helps you respond to something as horrible as 9-11 without becoming self-righteous. It's a literary mechanism. And there's no way, had I not been immersed in that text through, you know, previously, I mean, there's nothing that would have stopped me from lashing out in anger. Right. At one side or the other. It doesn't matter which side you take ideologically. Well, I, and I think that the position of that in the book of Isaiah, I mean, those verses are at the very, very end of the book. Yes, end of, chapter 66. End, end, of cha- end of chapter 66, yeah, you know, right, right there. And it's after all the wonderful chapters from 40 through the first half of 66 about how the Lord is going to come in, he's going to restore everything, he's going to have a new ruler, and you know everything is going to work out nicely. All those who are outside are going to be brought in, and it's all nice, and then he ends up with the, the dead bodies. And I think what he's really saying is that you can't even understand what these predictions of happiness are going to be until you've really waded through the bodies. For some people, they're lucky enough that they can wade through metaphorical bodies before they understand the depths of the the human condition and and what the Bible is teaching. Some people, because of whatever circumstances, have to be wading through literal bodies before they get to that point. And so that's an important place to put that image in the book. And so I think this, again, says, like, if you have a a curriculum on the book of Isaiah and you talk about themes or you talk about ideas or take this chapter, take that chapter, you're going to miss the way that things are put in a particular order to create a particular kind of response. And and in this, it's a prediction and a warning at the same time of what needs to happen. And when you read it and you understand it, then you're able to see an event like 9-11 through a different pair of glasses than you would otherwise. It's true. And I'll tell you something, getting back to the theme of my paper, How the Bible Teaches. If you are someone as most people are, someone who would not only dismiss violence in the Bible, but shun it. Right. That positions you on 9-11 to shun the attackers. Right. Because you're putting yourself in a position of authority to determine what should be shunned and what should be embraced. If you're someone who's become familiar with those texts, those difficult texts, the, the reaction is, is fundamentally different. Right. And once you put yourself in a position of authority, in a position of power, you're a consumer. You're the one, exactly. you're one who eats. You're not one who is eaten. And uh, this is why it's interesting going back to the, the Eucharist. If we are understanding the Bible, if we're hearing the Bible, then we should be ashamed to be eating Jesus. Exactly. It's, it's in other words, and this is what nobody talks about. There is a link. There is a technical link between the Eucharist and violence. The Eucharist is all about the question of violence. And I think we don't talk about that enough in the churches. No, it's true. I think it's interesting in the Catholic Mass, right when they're preparing the wafer, they take the wafer and they break it in half. And I think that symbolic breaking, of, I, think it's, I think it's a really important image that, we, yeah. that, that's, that comes out sacramentally, liturgically. And in the, in the Eastern, you don't use a knife to cut the lamb. You use a spear yeah. and your hands to break it. So, yeah, the priest is the abuser, technically. Right. The priest is the abuser in the service. It's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, it puts us all in the position of consumer. Correct. And the priest is a consumer by consuming the gifts, by preparing the gifts, which means hacking it up, which is what the priest would be doing in the ancient world with the animal. And the people are in the position of eating. And this is not a position to delight in or be excited about, but something to look more deeply in and understanding what is my role as a consumer. Yeah. 
am I allowing myself to be one who is consumed? Look, the Eucharist is condemning the assembly very clearly. Right. It's very clearly condemning the assembly. When Paul talks about, you know, this famous line that people use to build infrastructure around fasting rules with respect to the Eucharist, when Paul says some of you are getting sick because you're taking communion, it's a literary trick because within the scriptural framework and within the biological factuality of the human condition, everybody present, everyone who ever hears Paul's letter, unless, of course, Google succeeds, which they won't, right. but anyone who hears Paul's letter is going to get sick and die. Right. So it's functional. You're going to listen to this letter maybe a thousand times in your lifetime. Eventually, towards the end, if you're lucky and you live a little bit longer, you're going to be sick when you're hearing it, and you will be sick, according to Paul, because you're taking communion unworthily. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this conversation has prompted me to think more about, like, what am I consuming? What is my role as a consumer? What is my role as a consumed? Am I allowing myself to be consumed and who am I consuming, either directly or indirectly? That's a question I'm going to have to think harder about because that, like, that kind of hits. That kind of hits home. I mean, it's scripture. Either right. either you are the one who is losing, or you are winning at someone else's expense. Right. Which is why the only valid response to life is the cross. Right. That's why proselytization makes me extremely uncomfortable. Right. Any kind of ideology no matter what its thesis or no matter how eloquently it's articulated as Paul speaks of philosophy as an epistle, his epistles, lofty, fancy language, uh-huh. it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the only presupposition that matters, to use your terminology, Rich, am I the consumer mm-hmm. or am I the consumed? All right. Well, this has been a good conversation for me. Thank you very much, Father Mark. I'm glad you were able to present your paper, and hopefully you provoked as much thought and conversation in everyone who heard your paper as, as you did with me and in this conversation today. Thanks. Thanks. It's good to chat, and I'm looking forward to, to next week's discussion, where hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about your presentation. Oh, that, I'd enjoy that. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.